welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we will be covering a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoilis. And I'm George Wyeth. We're both product designers from the University of Sussex. This is episode two, How Do We Cop? Last time... <laughs> it's, it's a good title. Uh, last time we discussed facial recognition and just kind of like how the tech works all the way through to questions of privacy and overreach. But be sure to check out that episode and any others that you may be interested in after this. But now we are here with, again, our lovely lecturer, Claire Potter. Hi, Claire. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you guys in yeah. real life as well. Yeah, we're in person. It's this amazing. Incredible. We have transformed Claire's office, which is full of some wonderful plants from all sorts of places, some of which are donated. Yes. And we've transferred her office into a little podcasting studio. And this is really nice. Yeah, it's a nice little, nice little podcasting studio, this, to be honest. I think it fits quite well. I'm going to find you just, just camping out here forever, aren't I? <laughs> I'm just going to oh, come yeah. and go, oh, Maybe. hey. Uh, but yeah, so Claire is a person who has now published her book because last yeah. episode last episode you were here you were about to yeah I think I was yeah. yeah so I can actually say author now I was really cautious to not say author basically I was saying I've written something but it's not a real thing yet <laughs> but now it is a real thing I can say author and yeah I can see this one sitting on the yeah, shelf you can see a few of them around here a real yeah. thing yeah yeah I've covered my walls with my book <laughs> no I haven't there's two there's one that was due to go to somebody else that's why I'm not a narcissist I do just just have my book and then the other book's going for somebody else. But yeah, I mean, real thing. I, I'd do the same if I had a book. I would, I'd, I'd have a couple of copies because, you know, you have one that you keep and then if someone is really interested in it, you might just want to give it to them. Exactly. So it kind of makes sense to have more mm-hmm. than one. And it's, I think narcissistic would be an entire shelf of just your books. <laughs> well, everybody that I know forget is getting one for Christmas. So, um, yeah, spoiler That's alert, everybody that I know. <laughs> I'm joking. I wouldn't subject you to that. <laughs> That's a really, really good gift. Yeah, but I mean, also having it in the spirit of circular economy, which the book's about, you know, lending and sharing it. So there you go. You can, you can hand them out, can't you? Funnily enough, I'm, and this is going to sound quite strange, but I'm looking forward to the day that I find one of my books in a charity shop. Because that means it's kind of done its purpose, hasn't it? If somebody's read it, hopefully enjoyed it and not think it's a load of toot, and actually then wants to pass it on to somebody who can share it again or pass it to their friend. And yeah, I think that's going to be quite nice to hear about stories like that. At the moment, because it's so new... I'm getting people that are contacting me about, you know, the fact that they bought it or they've been given it and they're reading it and enjoying it, which is really great. I love to hear feedback. Um, but yeah, I can't wait to see it in its second hand state. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. If it's about the circular economy, almost when it gets to charity shops and eBay and I don't, are there lending libraries a thing here where people have little like bookcases outside their houses? Yeah, little libraries. Yeah. Um, some places have got converted um, like red telephone boxes, the old BT boxes. Some people have ones just sitting outside their houses. So yeah. yeah. The second you find it in one of those, then you've definitely succeeded. Yeah. Sure. And if anybody yeah. spots one secondhand out in the wild, then snap me and and put me put me in contact with that person so I can sort of oh, yeah. talk about Absolutely. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess we better plug your book as well, haven't we? So it's called Welcome to the Circular Economy. Um, and you can get it on all your bookstores. You saw it in Waterstones, I saw on on Instagram the other day as well. I that was ex- that would have been exciting. It was exciting. And yes, yeah, so I went in and asked the guy sort of whereabouts would it be? Because it could cover so many different categories. I was like, where would you guys put it? And it's actually in environmental sciences, which sounds incredibly grown up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so it was upstairs. We, we went running upstairs and yeah, there it was. And he went, yeah, you can sign it if you want. I was like, really? 
do I need to tell somebody that I'm not like graffitiing in this book? He's like, no, it's your book. Do what you like. <laughs> like okay. So someone's going to surprise, get a signed copy or did they like put a sticker on it immediately saying signed copy? I don't know. There wasn't a sticker when I left, but you never know. Somebody might just pick it up and then all of a sudden it's a signed copy. Because so. that would be fun. I, like if I, you know, I, I like the idea of just randomly, you know, one in every hundred. It's just got a signature in it. It would be kind of cool. Yeah. If I see one out in a bookshop, I might just sort of say to the bookshop owner, hey, I can prove this is my driving license. This is actually my book. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it all right if I sign it? And that put, like, that a little sounds very in? close to one of those YouTube social experiments where you go in, pretend to be someone else and sign their book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that could be quite interesting, wouldn't it? The yeah. messages that you'd put. But there is actually another person with the same yeah. name as me who is also an <laughs> author um and she oh, I does think I found stop... that. Ch- children's author <laughs> yeah. I think. yeah and um somebody who lives next door to my mum and dad um bought that book by mistake oh <laughs> thinking it was the book that i just um i just written he was very confused um but no there is another claire potter who was also an author oh, well big big old disclaimer it is immoral to go and pretend to be someone else to sign their books <laughs> um please we're, we're not you didn't get the idea from us you didn't no, totally not mm-hmm. yeah uh but claire is also a minimalist and your van life that you share on instagram's inspirational and cool uh founder of the one circular world website for more circular economy talks and topics and stuff um service against sewage rep and also trained in mma and longsword so don't don't sign her book because she will come for you <laughs> yeah i do have the weapons not here yeah, actually not here. but um yeah back in my home did you ever do fencing or anything similar no no i didn't actually the place that i trained longsword i haven't done it for a little while but the place i trained didn't make you do other stuff like fencing first you could just go straight in with the heavy stuff so yeah but yeah lots of other people were doing very elegant fencing at the same time that we were all you know throwing around 1.2 meter long long swords that's making a lot of noise (laughs) yeah i I did fencing for like a term at school once because uh the DT teacher got into it and illegally imported a bunch of fencing gear to Kenya, which is oh in of itself an incredible story. Cause of course it was, it was all like weaponry. So they didn't want you to bring it in. So he paid a Somali company to like ship it to some port in Somalia and then truck it over the border. Oh, wow. it was kind of an incredible, just like all, you know, I'm not going to say his name or which school, because obviously it's very, <laughs> very illegal, but we had this fencing gear and he had it, you know, he'd started to build a team with like two or three students. I wasn't good enough, nor did I really have the time. But most of it was just us, you know, screwing around and we we do like real training for an hour and a half or so. And the last half hour, we could just go anywhere on campus and it was a free for all. Oh, my God. So we'd all be out there in our fencing gear, running around, hiding behind bushes and stuff and like going out. <laughs> it was just really fun. That sounds incredible. And that lasted a couple of years until... Um, the police got involved. No, <laughs> no, it wasn't that. It was it was during a proper fencing match. Um one Someone of, lost an eye. One, no, one, one of the students <laughs> fell off the stage and broke his arm. Oh, um, oh, but that's not a fencing accident. It's not a fencing accident, but it was enough that the school was like, okay, we need to be more serious about fencing. So even though the thing that got someone hurt was what were, it was the only thing we were allowed to do from then on, mm. all the fun stuff. Yeah, anyway. It's always the case, isn't it? Yeah, it always is. But then I have friends who like at other unis do fencing properly now. And I'm always just joking around like, oh, I'll fight you. But of course, I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) Anyway, back on topic. You are a swordsmith. (laughs) Ish. 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 And of course, yeah, you're our wonderful lecturer, mentor, friend. Uh, We all love you. Oh, we love you too, guys. And you're now the head of of product design at Sussex as well. Yeah, which is a bit weird. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I've kind of been here the longest. So it's partly that. And I kind of make a lot of noise. 
So I think that kind of helps sometimes. But yeah, it's going okay so far. I've got an amazing design team, as you guys know, um, of lecturers and students that all work together really well. And that that makes my kind of role way easier. Anyway, we should talk about the topic at hand. Uh, <laughs> not as much as, <laughs> as much as we're not going to cut any of this, because this is just a fun episode. Uh, COP26, uh, it's a summit that is kind of like the big climate conference. It happens every year. Yep, every yeah. year. COVID, again, uh, messed that yeah, up. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> As you spend the next two weeks debating, negotiating, persuading, and compromising, as you surely must, it's easy to forget that ultimately the emergency climate comes down to a single number. The concentration of carbon in our atmosphere. Is this how our story is due to end? A tale of the smartest species doomed by that all-too-human characteristic of failing to see the bigger picture in pursuit of short-term goals. To turn this tragedy into a triumph, we are, after all, the greatest problem solvers to have ever existed on Earth. If, working apart, we are force powerful enough to destabilize our planet, surely, working together, we are powerful enough to save it. In my lifetime, I've witnessed a terrible decline. In yours, you could and should witness a wonderful recovery. That desperate hope, ladies and gentlemen, delicate, excellency, is why the world is looking to you and why you are here. Thank you. Yeah, so this is the 26th one from the name COP26, obviously. And it was hosted in Glasgow from the 31st of October to the 12th of November um, this year, as you said, after being delayed from last year by COVID, which was a bit of a sting, wasn't it, for um, anyone that's concerned about climate change, basically, because it's like, we don't want to wait. We don't want to wait on these things. But COVID kind of had, you had to, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a funny one with COP because it's a great example of how you probably could have done it via... Zoom or any other online platform, but there is so many different intricacies that go into the face-to-face -face discussions that it probably wouldn't have worked. And would we have mm -hmm. ended up with as many good stuff coming out of it? Nah, probably not. So it's probably a good idea to delay, even though I, yeah, I was very frustrated. It's like of all the things that we can't really just hang around to sort yeah. out, this yeah. is kind of the most urgent. Did they do any kind of like, obviously I didn't do the full conference over COVID, but they, did they have like a series of speakers or anything as a kind of like interim? There wasn't really much official stuff, but you got a lot of people that were talking to each other in the background. So all the negotiations that happen, you had a lot of people that were representatives of countries discussing things in more depth. So maybe taking more time to talk to each other before the actual main event. So it probably had some benefits. That in itself is is, is valuable. And it's almost if there was a way to inspire them to just do that all the time. Oh, great, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be nice. So COP, there was a lot that happened. A lot of good, a lot of not so good, a lot of disappointment. It, it was a lot, basically, going on every day. If you were following it in the news, there was some other announcement of this or that. Someone said this, someone said that, someone's pledged this or hasn't pledged that. It's a lot going on. I mean, the first big one probably that we can talk about was the fact that China and Russia both didn't even show up. Yeah. Well, they did show up, but their leaders didn't. 
Exactly. So they were represented by the representatives. And the way COP works is you get the big cheeses, so the presidents, etc., turn up for the first few days. They give their pledges. They do all the PR and the media stuff. And then you have the sort of the nitty-gritty work that happens after, which is the negotiators of that country. So, yeah, there were representatives there, but there wasn't really the face that you would expect talking about the pledges and from a leadership perspective. So that was really disappointing. Um, there was still some, as you say, still some good things that came out and China were discussing and Russia were discussing as well. But yeah, it, considering this is a global thing and it frustrates me because it's not as if those countries are separate. It's not like they can jet off anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, we're all on the same rock. Um, and in the same way, I saw somebody, George Monbiot, had, somebody had tweeted him after Cox. He was an, you know, quite animated and quite angry about some of the things that didn't happen. Um, and this person had gone, ha ha, you lost. And it was like, well, <laughs> and, unless you're Elon Musk and you're, and you're going to be escaping the planet. Sorry, we're all in the same boat. Yeah, everyone's yeah. Everybody's here. So it's like, sorry, that's kind of you too, dude. Um, so that's the thing is when you don't get representations from all the countries, you know, it's a bit disrespectful, I would mm. say. Yeah, then there really isn't winning or losing with climate. Like we all lose yeah. or we all persevere. There isn't really even a winning. Yeah, we sort of survive or lose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I quite right. liked um, actually what Joe Biden had said on that front because he he basically commented that China not being there, they're trying to be a sort of global leader and them not even showing up is just like, well, how are you supposed to be a global leader if you don't show up to the things where all the leaders are? Yeah. Um, which was, yeah, I, I, I did kind of like his comment on that. It was a sort of a, it wasn't like a, a dig, which often politicians are. It was more of just a, What's your thought process behind this? Yeah, it was an observation. Yeah, a statement. Yeah, I mean, obviously, whenever a politician does it, it is a dig to some extent. Oh, of course, but he wasn't. You know, he was wasn't saying it for power. He was saying it as just a we're all on this world and we have stuff to do. And as as much as he hasn't done loads for the climate, he's done a lot of undoing what the previous one did. So, oh, I remember sitting and watching pages being removed from about environment and the stuff from the White House official pages as soon as Trump got in, literally with despair yeah. as these page, people were frantically trying to screenshot stuff before it was just removed from existence. Of course it didn't. It never goes completely. But, um, but yeah, there was a lot yeah. of wrongdoings that he has righted. So some good to agree, yeah. 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 So the first, the first big, big bit of, so obviously, yeah, uh, China and uh, Russia didn't attend, but we had India uh, commit to reaching net zero by 2070. Mm-hmm. That was um, the one that hit the headlines, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one I put a commentary on as well. <laughs> People yeah. were like, oh, interesting. That's, that's the one that hit the headlines because obviously we've all been talking about reaching net zero by 2050 mm-hmm. and doing it as quickly as we can for 2030, really. So 2070, a lot, I think the, the, the media grabbed that one as like, a, India's doing something but not enough. Um, but there was some good underneath that, Yeah, I think. Because um, you've got to remember India is a very, very large economy. And, um, and a developing economy as well. Yeah. Yes. And they, 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 in that, they did try to pledge, what, 45% or 50% of their energy to be renewable by yeah, 2030? Yeah, 45% renewable energy by 2030, which, yeah, as I said, for that, that size nation from what they had, which was basically no commitment, yeah. it's pretty big. So, yeah. um, I mean, I did sort of call them out because in the book I have this terminology of the of the green cock, i.e. somebody that's talking about all this amazing stuff that they're doing. Well, actually, when you dig around, it's like the greenwash and the rubbishness. Mm-hmm. So so um, apologies, India, but you did get green cock of the day on my Instagram feed. <laughs> um, and it was quite interesting because some people came back with, oh, hang on a minute. Should you really be saying that? Because they are a developing country. And it's like, I agree. They are developing. They have coal, which is... 
you know, relatively cheap, the same as we had coal available to us as we were developing our, our economy. Um, but, but ultimately, again, it comes down to that same thing. We're all spinning around on the same rock. We need to make sure we get to all of our targets as quickly as possible and sort of saying, yeah, we're going to do it 20 years after the target. Yeah, is, is kind of not good enough. But then it's also not good enough that the developed countries don't help in making them transition, allowing them to transition. Um, and assisting on them transitioning quicker. Mm. So it's not just on them. It's on the rest of us that have gone through that stage of development that they are trying to do. Oh, it's definitely on everyone. And I think it, it, that's a really big thing is it's almost better for them to say, you know, our goal is 2050 like everyone else, or even be ambitious and say it's 2040, 2045, and then be very open about the fact that like our current economy can't achieve that. So they want help. They want to be able to do this, to be able to achieve it as opposed to setting a goal that's way in the future, which just makes it seem like a bit of a joke. Yeah, yeah. That could have been something that was the call out. And I mean, we'll probably talk about it later on, but sort of the, the aid for developing countries was certainly something that wasn't covered anywhere near to the level that it should have been. And, you know, there were lots of promises and not a lot of delivery so far historically. So we have to see how that's going to sort of pan out in coming years. Yeah. I mean, I know at least from personal experience, Kenya, obviously a much, much smaller country, much smaller economy than India. They've had a lot of foreign aid for climate. They've also put a lot of their own kind of money into it because the tourism sector is the entire economy for that country. So, you know, much of Kenya's power is solar, is uh, wind or geothermal. And like geothermal's kind of the worst of the renewables, but it's still very good. And, you know, that, that's like 80% of the country's power, which is kind of incredible. But at the same time, they're very, very far from achieving that net zero because of this huge reliance on fossil fuels, cars, trucking, everything like that. So, you know, they, I don't know where Kenya has stood on the goals, whatever they have, but they definitely wouldn't be saying we're going to be you know, way late to this. They're just kind of saying, please help us get there as soon as we can. Yeah. Sometimes that comes with pride. I think you see a lot of countries pride at events like this. Um, some of the smaller nations, particularly the island nations, were very clear with the way they were delivering, saying, we cannot do this. We will not be here unless you help. Some of the larger nations, maybe they didn't you know, say as much as they needed to with the aid that they really need. Yeah. And those island nations in particular, they're the ones that will just go under, obviously. Mm. Yeah. I love the, it was the foreign minister of Tuvalu. I think you shared it as well, Claire. Um, he gave his speech that he'd filmed with him standing knee deep in the ocean on the beach. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a really powerful message that he was saying whilst it had the visuals of him standing there. It sort of, cause it was, he had the sort of backdrop, the typical UN backdrop. And then the camera sort of slowly pans out and you see the flag sort of blowing in the wind and the ocean in the background. And it slowly zooms out more and more and more. And you realize he's just standing with this lectern just in the ocean. I um, have not seen that. I, it's a really, I'd like to yeah, see Yeah. It's a really that. powerful little, little speech. It really it's just is. the visuals um, wise. Um, and there was a lot of those sort of things from, yeah, developing nations and island nations. Because, I mean, some of them are sort of less than a metre above sea level. So, of course, mm. when we talk about <laughs> sea level rise, and particularly in areas such as that, where we're going to get quite a lot of sea level rise, you know, the entire, all communities, all of the history of those communities are going to be gone. Yeah. And soon. It's not, mm. it's not, you know, when we talk about 2070 or 2100, they don't have that time. They're not going to be here in, you know, a couple of decades if we carry on the way we are. So that was an incredibly powerful and emotive image for sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but the other thing that came out of day one was a pledge to end deforestation by 2030. And that was signed by 110, 
110 countries? It was 100 on the first day and it went up to 110 the next day when China, I think China joined the second day. But the big thing that stood out to me was the fact that Brazil signed it. Because yes. Jair Bolsonaro doesn't believe in climate change. No, he thinks it's a massive hoax and everybody should just carry on and yeah. get on with it. Um, and he's been very avidly not caring about the destruction of the Amazon. Which again, it's a more developing country. Um, I remember doing some research a while ago. So the UK has lost 97% of its forests. And that's from our industrial revolution, but we don't remember it because it was too long ago. Yeah. Um, so the Amazon is kind of doing the same thing that we did, but it, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you're, I guess, as much as we did make those mistakes, we didn't know we were making mistakes at the time and we now, now do know better. So it's, it, it's a very diff- difficult toss-up. Um, yeah. yeah, the fact that Brazil signed, I was very surprised by. I was really surprised as well, but there was a key thing that he said. Let me just find it. I think it was saying about deforestation. Um, so this was a quote. Um, Forests are important to me. This is from Bolsonaro. Forests are important to me because they cover more than 60% of my country. We are committed to eliminating illegal deforestation by 2030. So, of course, there's a huge amount of deforestation that happens in Brazil, but he's also giving a huge amount of, of um, passes yeah. <laughs> and licenses to do yeah. deforestation. So I was like, ooh. So that's why I noted that down, because it's like, okay, there's illegal deforestation going, but that's he maybe isn't saying in as black or white a way as we would expect or hope, um, because he might still be issuing licenses for deforestation, but that would be legal. Especially when he himself, if he doesn't believe in climate change, he's going to be a lot more liberal giving out those licenses to people who aren't necessarily deforesting in a sustainable or in a ethical way, but he won't care because of course it doesn't align with what he believes. Yeah, exactly. So So that was the interesting one, but I think the details and the nuance with Brazil, I really hope that he does stand by that, but given his track record, Mm. (sighs) yeah. It's not, not so trustworthy. I didn't actually spot that bit. I didn't realise it was just illegal what he'd said. That's... Yeah, I had a little dig around because I was like, something ain't sitting right. So yeah, that was a quote I found yesterday, funnily enough. So So when they mm. say when they say ending deforestation, is that essentially all logging systems would have to work within currently like farmed trees? It's really again, it's when and this goes for all of COP, when you see like the headline title, the way that that's actually delivered in each of the countries will vary according to the practices of that country. So when we think about deforestation, we are maybe talking about, you know, clearances for development, but then it also depends on the the um, economics of that country. So in Brazil, a lot of the deforestation comes from agriculture. So beef production, soy, palm, um, palm oil, etc., as well as things like coffee. Um, but if they are done in a licensed way, then maybe they aren't going to be coming under this kind of pledge. Um, You would hope they're done in a um, supportive way. So working as a regenerative type of agriculture. But again, that's so nuanced according to where the country that is actually pledging to do it. Some countries are able to do it much easier than others. Okay, that makes sense. So whatever the headline is, doesn't usually reflect what the countries have individually said. Because for some of them, they may be going really, really far to say, we're not going to cut down another tree. And others might be just saying we're not going to allow illegal cutting down of trees for agriculture, exactly. which is a much more of a niche. Yeah, this is mm-hmm. what makes COP so complex is that every um, for each of the titles that we're talking about, there's a, um, a document that goes along with that pledge. But then the way that that is delivered with each of the countries quite often does vary. Yeah, it's always so complicated. <laughs> I was I did a lot of my of research sort of following it and you read the news articles and it's just a headline. I'm like, yeah, but what does that mean? Yeah. And that is the difficulty of it. 
Um, I think keep on going. To, that was all. This this all happened in day one. There was yeah. a lot. A lot was happened a at the day. start. A lot yeah. happened at the start, and I was really positive at the start. It did sort of fizzle out, but that's kind of how these sort of things happen, isn't it? Because these um, nations have come to COP with what they've already decided on, and yes. it's just them announcing it at that yeah. point. So this is the headline moment with, yeah. the, with the leaders. Yeah. So day two. Um, I mean, the big one from day two was the methane pledge, uh, I think, which was the US and the EU led that over 100 countries to cut methane emissions by 2030. So they picked the uh, the better target date, um, which is, what do they, they aim to cut it by 45% again, I think it was? I'm not actually got uh, that down. 30% by 2030. 30%. Yeah. Okay. Um, which is pretty big because methane, obviously a lot of the climate discussion is focused on carbon, but methane is... 80 times stronger I've got down. I think that's the, uh, the, roughly the correct figure um, as a, of a greenhouse gas than carbon. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, as a, as a warming gas, yeah, over 20 years. Um, methane actually degrades quicker in the environment, but it's actually got a much more warming effect when it's up there, uh, in the time that it's up there, let's just say. Mm. So yeah, so methane is a biggie. We were talking carbon or sometimes we say greenhouse gases or emissions, but yeah, methane is a, is a real nasty. Yeah, it, do, it does. Te- it cycles quickly, but it's just very damaging. It, I, I was just thinking it'll be very interesting to see how that necessarily impacts like the meat industry, because obviously most methane production comes from like cattle. Yeah. So if they're saying they're going to cut it by 30% by 2030, which isn't far away, no, is obviously there is a general trend in Western nations to consume less beef, but I don't think there's enough of a trend for those countries to not have to do something fairly significant to cut. Like, you know, we've maybe done 10% at the most right now. Yeah, I agree. And when I saw the methane pledge, I also got super excited. I was like, all right, this is great, you know, pledge on methane. Um, how is that going to happen? 30%? Yeah. That's that's big. That's big. And when we say 2030, that is literally just around the corner in as far as action goes. So I'm really interested to see how this is going to pan out. Um, completely. Methane is mostly through agriculture. You get a lot of methane through um, rotting food, effectively. So if we think about our food waste not being picked up or composted or treated properly, you get a lot of methane from, you know, rotting vegetation. Um, So how is that going to be cut? I don't know. Considering the government pulled a report which was recommending that we become vegan um, because they're not in the business of telling people what to do. There was a very interesting report a couple of weeks ago, basically like the road to net zero, and it spoke about... um, methane uh, and it spoke about diet and how diet impacts things like methane um and it was recommending vegetarian stroke vegan diets should be encouraged to help reduce methane and it was removed from the government websites within a day but you can find it so if you google it you can find it so they just they, they don't want to push anything on yeah. anyone do they <laughs> so that's what i find really interesting is that that would be a perfect opportunity to take that framework it was done by um research agency um, take that and go, mm, okay, this is recommendations, these are some stats, this is our pledge, how do we jigsaw it all together? Um, but that didn't, that hasn't happened yet. So where are the methane reductions coming from? Yeah, I'm very intrigued to see, like, is there going to be just awareness movements trying to get people to reduce themselves? Or is there going to be, like, the removal of subsidi- you know, subsidies in some industries? Mm. Like, they have to do something fairly significant to hit that number. Yeah. And I think if they don't hit it, it's going to say a lot about all of these countries essentially doing a whole lot of greenwashing. They're talking a lot about these goals. And this is a fear I've always had is when we hit 2050, they're just going to go, oh, well, well, we didn't quite make it. 
or try for 2060. And they actually have set something really ambitious that is very easy to achieve with really big steps or impossible to achieve with little steps. And yeah, spot on. it's going to change within the next few years. So that'll, I'm really interested and hope, hopeful to see something really big go through or to see a lot of governments be seen for what they're really doing around climate. Mm, yeah, agreed. And I think this is one that as individuals, we can definitely feed into, excuse the pun of the food. <laughs> uh, um, I actually gave an analogy the other day about how we were at the coalface and somebody went, oh, very current for what we're talking about. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so I think things like methane production, changing your diet as an individual, yes, that has a massive impact. Um, obviously things like deforestation pledges, that's nothing as an individual you can really do a huge amount about. But yeah, methane reductions, that is something we can do something about. So mm. will there be the call for us to do something? as well as governments changing practices and, as you say, removing subsidies. Watch this space. Mm. Yeah, I think it would definitely be interesting. And definitely Subscribe for the, for the to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be diff- for the different nations as well, because there's different cultures around it. Um, I mean, China, <laughs> India, um, Russia didn't sign that one. But it's you can easily look at things. I mean, you can look at, like, COVID, the way that different countries reacted to it. And the way some countries are more like, this is the information, do what you want. And then other countries are like, this is the information, you're doing it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see how different countries work towards that. Mm-hmm. I can't see Boris and the UK pushing anything on the people other than just a, here's a recommendation. Maybe he'll go out and stand with Chris Whitty at his side and go, here's some, actually no, he's the medical one. Um, Valance is the, just the science one, yes. isn't he? Yeah. Um, and then he can show his slides. And next hope, slide, please. Next, next slide, slide, please. please. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the UK will do something. But you never know. You never know. Yeah, but this is, there was a funny thing when the statement came out when they pulled that report, I mean, like the path to net zero, whatever it was called, when they were saying about, we, you know, the government is not in the business of telling people what to do. And I just sat there and went, sorry, did you not tell us exactly what to do because of our survival through COVID for the last couple of years? And, and people exactly listened. that's exactly their job. Mm. Yeah, and that's kind of what you're doing to keep everybody safe and ensure our future security. So. Yeah, of course, you're going to get people that don't want to do what they're told, but you've kind of, that is your business. So <laughs> our entire legal system is the government telling you that you can't kill people, basically. Yeah, exactly. You can't drive at 150 miles an hour. Yeah. Yeah, it is an odd one. Uh, we can hope they do it. Yeah. Um, I guess continuing on with the government side of things, we're only at day three already. It does fizzle out, so we'll speed up, sorry, <laughs> I, I think. Um, day three was the finance one, mm. which... I mean, it's much more complicated. I struggled to sort of fully comprehend everything that came out of that day, I'll be honest. Um, but Rishi Sunak basically announced that London would become the world's first net zero finance centre um, by making new requirements for all the firms to publish their net zero transition plans, which was any firm um, that have shares listed on the London Stock Exchange, which to me seems like quite a lot of big firms would be that. Oh, yeah, a lot of big firms, actually. So this is something, so this goes into a bit more of carbon accounting and emissions accounting that we are going to be seeing more of. Um, and whereas a lot of companies have done that, this certainly isn't something that you know, is new for a lot of companies. This is something that will become policy for many more that haven't had to consider this thus far. So this, yeah, this was a complicated day. Um, and you also got into people maybe talking about um, offsetting and double counting of offsetting and how these kind of carbon plans might actually manifest themselves and how people might even be trying to wriggle out of things already. Mm. 
It was a joyful day, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it was a difficult one to It went from follow. some, like, you know, obviously scary but hopeful things to mm, let's talk finance and carbon, you know. But and, one, of, one of the yeah. other things that he spoke about, which was um, how companies need to sort of plan and say how they're going to be achieving net zero, and that's going to be their transition to net zero need to start being reported in 2023. So that is really close. So companies that maybe haven't considered doing anything with regards to net zero so far, that's something else they're going to have to consider. And these, we, I should have thought so, these are going to be public documents. So we mm. should be able to be able to look at them and say, mm, okay, do you know what? That's not good enough. So we're going to be able to start to like, you know, we, we, there's always been the like, which are the ethical companies, which are the companies we should support, which are the ones we shouldn't. And that's always been based on some research you can do based on what people say on their website, but not necessarily what they actually do. And if this is the case, that's very real. Yeah, really real. There's lots of metrics you can use to um, figure out what companies are doing, including like end of year accounting and stuff. But this should make it much, much, much clearer and simpler for people to understand. All right. Uh, talking politics, I do want to go back for a second just to day two because... Um, is this politics? I don't know. But uh, worth mentioning, Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, Ecuador, all pledging to do a huge amount of marine protected areas. Uh, as, as someone who's studying a lot of marine stuff right now for my final project, that excites me. As someone whose parent is a marine biologist, that excites me because marine protected areas are incredible. It should um, excite everybody. Mm, it should. Yeah. Really should. I mean, we talk about the forest being the lungs of the earth, but my God, the oceans really are. And yeah. the areas of the ocean that are going to be protected more are some of the more vulnerable areas. So that is, I mean, we need marine protected areas everywhere. I mean, not just in these very biodevice, uh, biodevice, <laughs> areas. <laughs> we kind of need them everywhere. But yeah, that, that pledge was was wonderful to hear mm, hopefully yeah. that will spread as well i really hope so because a lot of you know so a lot of smaller countries put a lot of effort into their marine because so much of local economies on coastal areas rely on them essentially so you know a lot of developing countries have people whose entire villages are fishing villages and we don't really have like in the uk fishing villages anymore we might have places where a lot of people are fishermen but they're not necessarily, you know, selling to their own town for the subsistence of their town. Yeah. I mean, Brighton was a fishing town. Yeah. Brighton it was called back in the day. And there's a fishing museum on the seafront. Yeah, it's a very cool little museum. It's a very cool it? little <laughs> museum. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of our places have grown up beyond that economy. But it is critical for really so is, many yeah. places around the world. Mm. I think this is probably tied into the same thing. But I also saw something about... Um, them expanding the protected areas around the Galapagos Islands. Yes. So I presume that's the same one because it's Ecuador yeah. involved in this. But yeah, yeah it's, um, it is really exciting to, to hear that. Yeah, there was um, a lot of good news around that. It's yeah. Very good, yeah. Because these sort of things also boost the fishing industry in time. If you fish in places adjacent to marine protected areas, you're going to get so much better fish because they just, the, the fish don't know what's a marine protected area and they just, swim about all over the place so there's so many studies so that important you do no fish zones and of course it's it's crippling or very difficult for fishers in the locality for a few years but then it only takes maybe five years and reefs start to bounce back and there was a report i was looking at the other day and the fishermen knew as soon as the sharks were back that was it they'd cracked it because the sharks would only come back if there's enough to support the species um, and yeah, reefs come back to life and then you can figure out how to fish them more sustainably yeah. and it's better for everybody. And like I say, tourism, 
You're going to get people actually coming and visiting that area to be tourists and see stuff, not just eat stuff. I mean, that, that's one of the big things. Like most of my mom's work is working with local communities to create their own conservation areas. So this is where, you know, the government all across Eastern Africa, various governments do protect certain places, but they usually protect whatever they consider to be a national park. And it's usually quite small. So this is getting local communities to, among themselves, just say, hey, this, you know, between this and this outcrop or whatever, no fishing is allowed. Maybe ever, maybe only this time of the year, maybe only spearfishing because it's very, you know, you don't get any bycatch spearfishing. Yeah. Um, and then it's also getting those people to then do conservation as well and also do tourism. So there's a very successful one in Kenya called Kuruwitu, which started out as a, you know, really small marine protected area for a small fishing village, a tiny fishing village, you know, 60 people live there or something. And it happened to be quite close to quite an affluent little like golf club. And then they now do snorkeling tours for that golf club. So there's this tiny, really, really poor village very next door to an ultra wealthy kind of, you know, really awful inequality. Mm -hmm. But you have people who are employed in this village full time as like snorkeling guide leaders at this club for you know millionaires essentially mm. and all of that money is going straight back into their little environment and they're protecting that area just by basically telling fishermen just go outside of it please you know yeah. there's no legal requirements but everyone's following it because the rules work mm. and similarly you know it's it's it can be so simple as another project my mom did was just getting a bunch of octopus fishermen to not do anything for six months wow. they essentially they paid them to not fish octopus for six months and then said all right go crazy and suddenly everything they were pulling up was about three times the size and they were making three times the money. And sh she said, all right, well, here's a program. Do you want to do it? And they all did it. So now they just don't fish half the year because they can make the same amount of money much more sustainably mm. the other half of the year. Yeah. I mean, so it's programs like that that you can so easily do in these places. And it is, it's exciting when countries commit to that because not only are they going to be committing to you know, huge swaths of protected areas by big national organizations, it's also going to be encouraging communities to really care about their spaces. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting about that example you had was we quite often say that you protect what you love. It's been said by environmentalists, you know, globally for, for eons. And, you know, you might say that maybe the people at that golf course who are the millionaires don't have as much of a consideration for the environment. That's a sweeping statement, of course, as many that do. But by exposing people that maybe wouldn't usually be exposed to that kind of experience and seeing the beauty of a reef that's bouncing back, you know, maybe they then make a different choice. Maybe they then support a project themselves, which will be able to bring that to something, you know, a different part of the country or the world. Yeah, so absolutely. it's really important to get people out into nature wherever they are so they can appreciate it. I mean, that ties somewhat bittersweetly into um, <laughs> the US's, they, they pledged 9 billion to restore and protect forests and lands in Africa um, by 20, up to 2030. Um, and then Jeff Bezos stepped out on stage with Biden um, I think of Biden anyway, and added a further two billion to it, and defended his trip to space, which I guess is this this element, um, by saying that it made him realise how finite and fragile the Earth is. Yeah, it was like no shit, Sherlock. Really? Oh my god! What you just suddenly occurred to you now? You've flown up there that you realise this is a finite planet. It was like oh my god! It was. Look, we 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 do need a lot of money. A lot of the stuff that we could, we've talked about and are talking about needs vast amounts of cash. Um, 
But yeah, I just sort of sat there and just wanted to punch the telly because mm. I'm like, of all of the people to be going, oh, my heart's bleeding. I've now realised, well, what are you doing about it, dude? You're still building rockets to, it's basically like a competition between all of the other blokes. It's like a big blokes club, isn't it? Um, with, with um, oh, you know, with Richard and Elon as well. It's like, who can do the most? And it's, oh, it drives me insane. Mm. Use that money for something amazing and something good. Yeah. And also it's like, you know, the rest of us are never going to go to space, yet we can look at incredible like I, you know I'm, I'm a huge fan of nasa and their footage and everything about them is incredible but you don't have to physically do it you know you could just find on youtube the live streams from the international space station of earth and you do look and just go holy shit like yeah. you know we're all there yeah. and you know one person's like you know in our scale like one person's poor choice across the other side of the globe can't we don't think about it but you know when there's a wind current that runs across the entire ecosystem of this planet you know, you've seen when giant volcanoes blow up and half the world goes dark for a mm. week, you know? Yeah, it very much has always been so points like that. I'm like, oh, God. And it did actually remind me there was one time I was coming at my design studio and I don't know how, but I ended up talking to a guy in front of the design studio who was a flat earther. Um, and <laughs> do, do they exist still? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and, they do. <laughs> and he, that's basically, that was his thing to me. He was like, yeah, but how do you know that the earth isn't flat? Have you been to space? And I had to be like really honest and go, no, no, I haven't been to space. But I kind of also trust that I've got a heart inside my body that's pumping all my blood around. I haven't seen my heart either, but I kind of think that it's there because I've got enough evidence to tell me that it has. And he was like, oh yeah, but, and he had an answer to everything. <laughs> and in the end I was like, yeah, thank you very much. I've kind of got to go. <laughs> well, well, they, they, they definitely buy into, you know, some kind of online service that gives them all their talking points oh he was well prepped let's yeah. just put it that way but but yeah it was i think cool. they've had a lot of practice that's what yeah. it is they, they've they've had a lot of practice in finding an answer to the most absurd points yeah well sorry yeah. The mo an absurd answer to the most obvious points yeah, yeah. Sure but an saying. absurd answer that is very difficult to rebut because it's kind of so stupid mm. yeah uh, a reminder that sussex university used to have a flat earth society Really? Yeah. What, ironically or, or not? So <laughs> this was only a couple of years ago. Um, they, Surely it, that was ironic. It started like, you know, genuine flat earthers. I think there are about two or three of them. And then everyone saw it and realized how hilarious it was. So kind of joined and took over as an ironic thing. Oh, wow. And I went to one of their socials. Um, if, you, if you could guess. Was which, it flat? Oh! No, no, <laughs> no, I'd like you to guess which bar it was at. Oh, oh! Please tell me it's something like the Globe or something. It like was that. the Globe. <laughs> <laughs> so the, flat, the Flat Earth Society had uh, like two, every other week a social at the Globe, and I went to one of them. They were really fun, um, but you know, no one took over this year. So. Oh gosh, that is funny. Well, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, even Jeff Bezos. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to turn down his two billion. It's, it's helpful, isn't it? But yeah, we'll have it. You know, <laughs> but you do <laughs> you do want to go? Hang on, the U.S. government's giving able to give nine billion. And Amazon, who arguably have a lot more money than the US government, is only giving two billion. And it's not even Amazon, it's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. true. Yeah. Um, anyway, and, and somebody yeah, that up. massively profited from COVID. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hugely so. So, who, who was your uh, green cock of day two? Oh, do you know what? I had um, Australia was my green cock um, because they were. Why did I make Australia their green cock? Oh, because and we were they were talking about exploration of fossil fuels and they and if they actually um, opened up all of the fossil fuel elements that they said that they were currently prospecting for, their their emissions would increase by thirty percent. Oh, yeah. Um, so they were a massive green cock, and then India had had the green cock. Do you know what? Some days I didn't do a green cock because I just got so 
bogged down and disillusioned with some of the stuff that I was I was saying. It was like there was too, too many mm. there too many contenders. Jeff Bezos himself would have got green cock for this yeah. day, though. Yeah, I think that I would have given it to Saudi Arabia at one point because there was an interview. I don't know if it was Greenpeace that did the interview or they just shared the video where they were clearly, I think this was later on when they were sort of trying to get through the negotiations on the um, the pact agreement, like wording. And I think someone lower down a delegate um, who basically when questioned about whether they were blocking um, the phase out of fossil fuels, basically his comment was, no, we believe that we should use all the resources we have and that will help us develop. <laughs> that will help us overcome these issues or something like that. Which is which is quite, a, I don't know, it's a very honest statement. Isn't yeah, it? I mean, he's not hiding his intentions. I'll give him that. We've got a lot of it and we're going to use it to make us better, guys. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the trouble with the uh, Saudi Arabia and those sort of, those sort of um, UAE nations... They basically wouldn't exist if it wasn't for fossil fuels, really. No, you know, the extravagance all comes from fossil fuel money. Yeah, cheap um, fuel, cheap fuel. It's incredible. It's well, my brother lives in Dubai, and sometimes he tells me, he like he gives me a, a shout as he's driving his car or whatever, and he, uh, and sometimes he stops and gets fuel. And I hear him talking to the guys that's filling up, and and I was like, how much is that? Oh, like ten quid or something. That's mm. something that would cost maybe fifty, sixty pounds in the UK. And I'm yeah. like, wow, okay. And he goes, yeah, there's zero incentive to not drive. No, it's, it's insane. Like especially, I don't know, you know, in California, fuel is very expensive because it's very highly taxed. And then we went to Minnesota, so you know, same country, um, half the price, if not less, mm. for the the same fuel, the same thing, same fuel station same company you know literally everything's the same but just because of like just that difference of you know 800,000 miles whatever yeah yeah it's a tricky one particularly for those countries because obviously they're just gonna cling on to what they know aren't they this is the way they started same same as we can say with India with coal it's what they're basing their economy on it's what UK based our economy on that's what started the whole bloody industrial revolution isn't it yeah so um so yeah you're gonna cling on to the stuff that you know you've got within your borders yeah the UK is just very very lucky that all you know all the towns here are so small and old that there wasn't the ability to just throw highways through the middle of them because that's what's happened in the US and it's kind of sad to look at it yeah. is you know all these plate all these the Fossil fuel industry and the car industry and all of them just had such a grip on the government through um, through their lobbying that just public transport is non-existent yeah. in so many parts of the country. So you just kind of have to have a car. Mm. And, you know, even I, you know, I live not far away from San Francisco. San Francisco has incredible public transport. I'm 25 minute drive away from the city across a bridge. And we've got like the edges of the train system that runs in San Francisco. That's great if I want to go into town. But like, if I want to go to a friend's house, if I want to go to school, if I want to do anything around where I live, I have to drive. Yeah. And, you know, I live in Oakland. It's a big city. Mm. And that's just a, not a great thing. There's a highway running, cleaving the city in two. And you'd have thought, you know, one side's pretty poor and desolate. The other side's very wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, well. The whole public transport thing is just an issue. It is an issue in the UK. Obviously, I grew up in a village. So the bus, I think there's two buses an hour. From my village and then to get to the nearest town which takes me about 20 minutes 15 20 minutes in the car would probably take you about 45 minutes on the bus like it's just not yeah. it's not really viable for most people so you know everybody around around surrey drives yeah. were least. there any um people on cop 26 talking about public transport or talking about um kind of like electrification of infrastructure odds and sods 
There wasn't really any major sort of discussions around that. There was a couple of things on transport um, around non-electric non vehicles. Mm -hmm. It's basically saying that you won't be able to purchase a fossil fuel burning uh, car, truck, etc. Um, in whatever years. Some of them have got 2030, 35, 40. Um, some of them have brought them forward. So as far as transportation goes, there was some discussion about what you can actually buy. Um, a lot of the also discussion was, okay, yeah, but how are people going to afford it? So is mm. there going to be any kind of subsidies or more incentives? Um, and then also there was discussions about things like power. So it's great if everybody's got an electric car, if you can plug it in where you work or where you live and the infrastructure is there. So we kind of need the infrastructure to catch up with the pledges of you will need to buy or we will be buying electric vehicles. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And that's globally as well. That's not just the UK. It's a very global issue. Uh, I did see something very interesting about some trucks in Germany that they're trialing having essentially like electric power lines over the highway. So for the big trans, like the big highways that go through the country, the trucks can be electric or they can be hybrid. And when they get on that big route where they're just on a highway for two hours, a little crane thing raises, connects to the wires and they run fully off the grid. So it's sort of like a massive tram. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, it's just a massive tram carrying two or three containers. Yeah. And then when they get within a few miles of the destination, the thing drops and then they either move to petrol or electric for the last whatever three miles, which that that amount of the journey is practically nothing. Yeah. It's the big, you know, three hour drive that does it. So it's a kind of there's some incredible technology being trialed, but yeah. obviously we just kind of need it now. Yeah, we need to speed up. Yeah. And that infrastructure takes a long time to test to prove it's going to work, to, um, you know, cost and actually get built. So, yeah. yeah, time's running out with that one. Yeah. Well, that yes, brings us to day five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, I'm just jumping in to the recording here to let you know that our conversation with Claire will be continuing in the next episode, releasing very soon. We hope you're enjoying listening to our chat as much as we enjoyed having it. It's a really fascinating conversation with Claire uh, and COP26, of course, is a very important thing uh, for the whole world. Uh, so stay tuned to your podcast feeds to hear part two as soon as it's released. And of course, remember to share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, and all those lovely houseplants. And follow us on Instagram at assemble.it, where we will, of course, be sharing when the second part goes live. Thanks very much for listening, and catch you soon. Some Assembly Required is co-hosted and produced by Pablo Samoilis and George Wyeth, and edited by George Wyeth. Music is by Mikey Burtwistle. This is a 76 Podcasting production.